Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... How did it strike you as a guy to hear that your future wife has a special right to tenderness from you? So I think I'm weird because I thought it was great. (laughs) I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Today we are joined by Alice Heinzen, the former director of the Office for Marriage and Family Life for the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is also now a consultant for our own committee for Lady Marriage, Family Life, and Youth over at the USCCB. Andrew, it is so good to be with you. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, We're talking today about the upcoming World Day for Grandparents and the Elderly, which Pope Francis announced uh, at the beginning of the year and is happening on the fourth Sunday in July, which this year is July 25th. Alice, I know you have a lot of professional experience as a marriage and family life director, but also as a grandparent yourself, you have plenty of personal experience. How many grandkids do you have? We have 10. We are so blessed. They (laughs) range in age from 11 and the youngest one is three and a half months. When you become a grandparent, how does that impact how you see your own kids? You know, when you're a parent, there's a, a level of worry that is kind of natural and omnipresent. Does that go away at all? Does that change? Well, let me start by saying how I look at my kids now that they're all married with children. And I'm first going to say that I have enjoyed every stage of raising my own children, our own children. Jeff and I have been married for 41 years, and we just love what the vocation of marriage has done for us. But now that our children have all taken on the same vocation and They've all decided to be very open to life. I have to say that I see my children as fully alive in that vocation. That has just been awesome to watch. I am so grateful to see them being so selfless in raising all of these little chickens. And, you know, they're, it's, it's a lot. I mean, you know, when you, we've got one family that's got all girls, our son, our oldest son, and he often says, I feel like I'm living in a girl's locker room. And there's so much going on all the time over there. But the fact that he's willing to embrace that, take it on, provide for all of that, my heart is so warm. I also embrace and love the fact that they all want to be helpmates to each other. They really team up well, help each other out, you know, sharing duties, disciplining. They're good at that. And they're very joy-filled in what they're doing most of the time. (laughs) So I see my kids right now and I'm just like, oh, dear Jesus, thank you so much. Your question about worry. So I'm going to be honest with you. I have a tendency to want to be a worrier. That's why Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 is something I have to remind myself, which is, you know, have no anxiety anxiety at all. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Then the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. And that piece is probably a little bit easier to lose hold of uh, if you're not constantly making that effort, right? Right. It's kind of crazy that when we were raising just our own kids here in the house, I always had this intuition when they were struggling with something. We always had a home where if someone was just out of sync, we could know that. We just could into it and bring it back in. And then they grow up, they go out, they get married. And we started now to, I can really kind of, through that sixth sense, know when these spouses are having issues. And I'm feeling it now with the grandbabies. So it's kind of weird, but when you hand it off to God to let God tell you when you need to worry, when you need to intervene, I would say most nights I rest much easier. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear. For all those uh, younger parents out there, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, It's also something that when it comes to that worry, I think everybody needs to remember as a parent or a grandparent, why do we worry? Why are we concerned? Well, it's because for heaven's sakes, we love them. (laughs) We want the best for them. And because we want the best for them, we will be concerned. We will pay attention. And that's a gift for us to give our kids is to be loving to willing their good, not necessarily telling them what to do, but always being warm and receptive to them and what they're dealing with. That's a key to me 
as I see this next generation start mm-hmm. to grow up. It's good to keep that in mind because I think some people can, when they realize how much they're worrying or just maybe when they're they're feeling that emotion very strongly, it kind of feels like overwhelming to them. But it can be helpful to realize as is ordinarily encountered, worry is an aspect of love. So it's a sign of a good thing. Yeah, and I think I look at it more as being concerned, being involved. And when you know what they're dealing with, And when you choose to receive it, to pull it into yourself, you know, our job is not to solve those problems, but to maybe offer them up in different ways and then be available to whatever they're dealing with. Yeah. (laughs) That's part of uh, grandparenting, I guess, is how can we help? How can we give you the extra two hands or four hands that you need? That availability seems like it might have its own challenges too, because like it's sometimes you're probably you're seeing your kids grapple with the struggles of being a parent and you want to, you know, you want to get in there and you do want to play an active role in helping or fixing. And if they want to do it themselves or if they, you know, want to be independent or something like that, it can be hard to accept that role of not doing something, even if you see maybe what needs to be done and you want to to benefit from your experience, right? Well, it can be. It's kind of interesting. I was having a conversation with our daughter. I said, they're going to be interviewing me and asking questions about grandparenting. How, (laughs) how, How are dad and I doing? And she gave a very succinct answer that I think was really good. She said, I think that grandparents that share insights with their children about their grandchildren, but always yield to the authority of the parents. They're the ones that do a good job. Interesting. And I agree with that. I know that I have three children and my three children have given us 10 grandchildren. They are their children. And far be it for me. And again, in my experience as a director of marriage and family life, that's a key piece is that a grandparent always has to remember you're not the parent. You parent your children. They parent their children. One aspect of the upcoming World Day for Grandparents and the Elderly, Pope Francis actually gave this year's a theme. Uh, Even though it's the first year, the theme for this particular one is I am with you always from Matthew 28.20. And he set this as the theme because he wanted to emphasize the importance of presence in the lives of people from other generations, especially people being isolated during the pandemic. Do you think that scripture passage that I am with you always maybe doesn't get enough attention from people who feel isolated, whether they're stuck at home with the kids or they are maybe a little bit older and, you know, they're not raising kids anymore? You know, Andrew, that's a beautiful verse and one that I really wish more people contemplated and reflected upon because the gift of presence, E-N-C-E, rather than presence, N-T-S. Which the grandkids might be more immediately familiar with. (laughs) Yeah, it it can happen. Again, we weren't the average bear when it came to grandparents because of all of our professional work. Mm -hmm. And we were cued in early on that we're going to give our kids the presence, ourselves, the adventures, (laughs) the activities, the memories, more than we're going to give them things. It's just something that we did raising our own children. And we really are intentional about doing that with their grandkids as well. You know, it's kind of interesting when I read that verse and I'm thinking about it, I sometimes wonder why is it that people don't look at that and really take it to heart more often. And I always come back to the fact that for several generations now, when it comes to families, families have just gone, "Mm, the trajectory of what a family is about has just gone a little off where it should go because a lot of families have bought into the end game of parenting is to raise a child who is independent, a child who is going to be able to stand on his or her own two feet, take care of themselves, et cetera. Okay. Mm -hmm. If as a parent, that's your goal, when your children get to be adults, they stand on their own two feet, they go their own way. Why would you expect them to turn around and come back and be with you? You've got, you've given them a goal and they're living the goal. So I often say to parents, "Mm, maybe you need to rethink that. Maybe independence is more like a bridge that takes a person from being dependent to becoming interdependent. And that's what presence is all about, is structuring it on, we're taking you from dependency to interdependence 
over a bridge called Independent. But we don't want to keep you on that bridge too long. We want to move you there. And when that happens, as a parent, as a grandparent, whatever, you keep the generations entwined because you realize we're together. And in talking with a lot of grandparents, either my friends or presentations that I've given, groups I've talked with, as a lot of grandparents have come to that realization. I taught my kids to be independent and now I'm mad because they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point about starting in that, in that place of dependence and thinking that the goal is just radical independence because in a state of dependence, you're just receiving constantly. You're dependent on receiving everything from your own parents. But the goal is not to end up in a point of no longer receiving. The goal is to get to the point of both giving and receiving. And sometimes one is going to predominate over the other, but that giving and receiving really activates those two sides of our being. And of course, like when it comes to our relationship with God, we're always only ever going to be receiving even if we give to him. Exactly. But now let's tease this into that verse from Matthew. I will be with you always will resonate both to the child as well as the adult, to the grandchild as well as the grandparent. When you know we're entwined, my story has now become your story. I will always be part of your story. We belong together. I will miss you when you're gone. You will miss me when I'm gone. We need each other. We thrive because of each other. Yes, we're going to have issues. Yes, we're not going to agree on all of this. But we're going to work through those things together. We're going to sharpen each other's personalities. We're going to unearth our giftedness in each other. Why? Because I am with you always. And I think that's something for you know, if we're looking at it from the grandparent side, if we're looking at it from the elderly side, then the strategy becomes if you're isolated, if you're feeling like you're being pulled away from or you're not part of that, then you got to think about, well, how can I do that? The world has afforded us the ability that families no longer live on the other side of the fence. <laughs> they can be a million miles away. Well, praise God that there are some good applications of technology where, you know, you can be together, even if it's just virtually. But I think it's up to grandparents in particular who are feeling isolated to reconnect. Call your children. And even if they seem a little put off and they're too busy for you, persist, <laughs> keep going. But now you you still have the ability, as long as you're taking a breath, getting up in the morning, you still have the ability to call them back to interdependence. So do so. It's perfectly permissible. I had a grandmother that lived to almost 107. Wow. And one of the things that I will tell you about sweet Bertha is that Bertha did, after my grandfather died, probably, she lived 30 years beyond him. We would go over when, when grandpa was dying because... Grandma had been so good at interdependence with us. When he was dying at home, uh, and there was no such thing as hospice, uh, my cousins and I would alternate weekends coming from college to go up to this little city in rural Wisconsin to help grandma on the weekend to take care of grandpa. She would come out every morning and, uh, you know, we would allow her to sleep so we could take care of him. But we, there was not even a thought of not doing that. I mean, we're all busy in college getting our degrees, but we'd come out of Chicago, we'd come out of Madison to come up and be with her because she was with us always. And my husband's parents, when the children were all getting married on the Heinzen side, they said, we want to maintain that interdependence with everyone. So we are going to schedule one weekend in the year where without exception, this is the Heinzen's weekend. And I have to tell you that at the time that I that they started doing this, there were maybe two grandkids. There were the there were the seven Heinzen kids. I think five were married at the time. So the gathering was modest size. Outside of COVID, the clan still gets together. And we are now a strong 50 to no, it's more than that, 60 some people. And who's keeping it going in our group? It's the grandchildren. Oh, good. Nice. Because it's instilled in them. Just like Bertha instilled in her grandchildren, my husband's parents instilled in their grandchildren. My children, 
and their cousins. Yeah, I think you may have already started to answer my next question, because I think a lot of the question a lot of people's minds when they think about relating to younger generations is how to hand on the faith. And I'm guessing you've seen a lot of instances, not just in your own family, but as marriage and family life director with, you know, varying levels of success, I'm sure, too. Can you maybe give us some do's and don'ts based on what you've seen? Because, I mean, you just mentioned modeling interdependence. I, I bet that sort of thing is probably going to play a role in success cases of handing on the faith. Of course it will. It's really patterning your life to be like Christ. And let's face it, Christ had relationship before he had rules. You know, he lived by the rules and he showed that to everyone. But first he developed a wonderful relationship. So when it comes to passing down the faith, I think the first thing we have to think about is what kind of parental warmth do we share with our children? And then what kind of grandparent warmth do we share with the grandbabies? You really need to have the, those relationships vivify the rules and give life to them. those rules, which can seem kind of dead at times. Well, and the way that you bring the rules to life mm -hmm. is by walking the talk of your faith. Yeah. That's how you do it. You've got to make sure that as a grandparent, whether your children are practicing your faith, the Catholic faith, or they're not practicing at all, the key really is your ability to unconditionally love them, receive what they have, and then live out your own faith in front of them. Because when you live your faith, in joy, there's something very attractive yeah. about that. There's your do. What's the don't? <laughs> the don't is the, you know, when you start saying my faith practices or the highway, that doesn't work. That's not warm. A couple of examples. If you have a child that stepped away from the Catholic faith, but they're still practicing some faith, they believe in God, maybe they've gone to different congregations, they might be church shopping, whatever it is. You know, it's really important as a parent and a grandparent, explore with them. Don't give up yours, but at least become familiar with where are they? See what's going on. You know, if they ask, you know, if they're going to services, go. And you can still go as an observer. Right. Yeah. But what it's showing is you have great interest in how they're pursuing God. Mm -hmm. Step one, I would say another thing that's really important is you got to pray. Oh, you got to pray. One more time. Let me say it. You must pray. It, this is so important. What did I learn from my grandmother, Bertha? I learned that every day you should pray for every person in your clan by name. So I have adopted that practice almost every morning. I'm up taking a rosary walk and I say at least one Hail Mary for every person, for my children, for their spouses, for all my grandbabies. And I also pray for all of the grandparents that share my grandchildren, the beautiful people that have come into our life because of love. Yeah. You need to pray. Why? Because let's face it, God's timing on this faith journey that your children are on, that you're on, is perfect. Yours is not. So you might say, okay, if I pray, then you'll get them back in church by this point and everything else. God might have a different plan for your children. And through prayer, you become more patient, at least I do, in how does that all happen? Another do, when you pray for children, my friend's got children that have walked away from the faith. He calls or texts his kids every week. And he has a day of the week that he prays for certain children. Oh, that's a cool idea. He texts them and he says, hey, praying for you today. If there's anything you want me to pray for, let me know. He said this has made a huge change in his children's life. So we've adopted it here. And I text my kids and I'm like, hey, I'm praying for you today. You know, what do you need? And the first, when I started it, I would get all kinds of emojis back, like, why, what, did, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> you know, do, is something going to befall me? And the answer is no, I love you so much. I want to pray for you. That's a wonderful thing that grandparents can do. Yeah, prayer as a normal facet of everyday life and not a break glass in case of emergency kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I think, but but again, when it comes to passing on the faith, the listeners might be interested in reading a book that was written by Vern Bangston, Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations. It was a longitudinal study that was launched 35 years of research from 1970 until 2005. 
More than 350 families were studied of all different faith denominations. And his, I'm not going to do the, what all the conclusions are, but spoiler alert, he comes down to this. Parental warmth is what really matters. Do your children feel the love of Christ through you? And then the second one is, you know, to make sure that you walk, you talk, and you do so with joy. He also finds out things like the faith practices of the father speak a little stronger than the faith practices of the mother. So that dad warmth really means a lot. We actually talked about that in our previous episode on uh, on fatherhood. Our subcommittee's chairman, Bishop Kondrla, cited a, a Swedish study from the 90s that found the same thing. He's not the only one saying that. No. And, and again, he did this as a research project, not necessarily in a theological state. Right. And I think the other things that he found out or that he researched is parents who are united in marriage, where the faith is a shared practice, obviously it's a little easier to get that that faith down into the next generation. Another piece is making sure that your kids know they can come to you with their questions. Yeah. That's really key. And that there's that there's a safety there. I can come in and I can ask you questions and we can debate this and neither of us are going to walk away mad. We're going to keep at it until we go. Yeah. So those I think are the biggest things. But the the other major point here is that when it comes to the passing down of the faith, the strength of the family, meaning the interdependence of the family, really speaks loudly on the transmission of faith. A family that considers themselves interdependent, they have rituals, they have routines, they're in touch. Those are the ones that tend to have a, a more likely transmission of the faith than those who have scattered with independence. That makes sense. And we'll uh, be sure to link to that book, Families in Faith by Vern Bengston in the episode notes. So thank you for putting that on our radar. You're welcome. And, and if I can, I'd love to link to one other one. And this is by, sure. it's called the, the Catholic Grandparents Handbook by, I, I'm probably going to butcher her last name, <laughs> but it's Hanley Duquin, I believe. D-U-Q-U-I-N, Laureen Hanley Duquin. Lovely book. It's a gift I give often to new grandparents. Oh, cool. Wow, I like that cover design. That's neat. Yeah. Not that you're supposed to judge a book by its cover, but if you were, it would be a good judgment. <laughs> yeah, they did a nice job on that. Cool. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll link to both. Well, Alice, uh, anything to add as we uh, wrap up? I am so excited that children today get to really know their grandchildren much better than children who were born when I was born. You know, the life expectancy of our elderly is much longer. I only really got to know one grandparent really well because the rest died in their 60s. -hmm. And to have a grandmother that lived until she was nearly 107 gave me a grandparent in my childhood, my young adult years, you know, all the way through. And she got to hold her grand great-grandchildren. That is more the standard now. So grandparents should take heart in that and should be excited about that. One other thing that I would add too is that if your grandbabies are a long ways away, consider adopting, (laughs) at least in spirit, families that are close to you that might be part of your parish. One of the greatest joys for Jeff and I is We have a family that I would consider their children our grandchildren. They live close to us, and we just have a loving relationship with these people to whom we are not related. There's a lot of that opportunity out there. So be open to the families that God might be putting into your path that you aren't necessarily related to, because there's a lot of families and churches now whose grandparents live a long ways away. And you might fill a need to be there with them. Yeah, that's super helpful because we're only getting more and more transitory. But thank you again for joining us. And if you want to hear more from Alice, she was uh, already featured in a few of our episodes. So be sure to check out uh, in the episode notes, episode uh, 4, 22, and 28. Thank you for uh, coming back and spending a little more time with us, Alice. We appreciate it. You're welcome, Andrew. Thanks for the invitation. 
In addition to the World Day for Grandparents and the Elderly, the last week in July also features Natural Family Planning Awareness Week. NFP Week is happening from July 25th to 31st, and you can check out our link in the episode notes for resources, prayers, and a whole lot more to help you spread awareness for natural family planning in your area. And we are back with Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, chapters 10 and 11. Kara, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We are making the final turn in uh, Edward Street's book, Breaking Down JP2's Love and Responsibility. And we've just read chapters 10 and 11, and we are ready to chat about it. So in chapter 10, Sri covers JP2's discussion of tenderness. And then in chapter 11, he moves on to contraception. It may not immediately appear that these are related, but as we'll see, there's definitely a strong relationship between the two. So what we're going to do, we're going to start out with a little bit on chapter 10, and then we're going to move on to 11, and then go back to 10 to wrap up our discussion. Because the way we read these chapters, tenderness and contraception, and then the way tenderness works in a marriage, those three broad topics are not handled in the same order. So we're going to go a little bit out of order, but it all makes sense by the time we're done with it. Right, Kara? Yeah, definitely. I just want to frame up the discussion a little bit before we get into it, because as you may have guessed based on those chapter titles, essentially these two chapters are dealing with physical intimacy. And if you are like me and have been to many chastity talks over the years, alarm bells are probably going off in your head. They're like, oh boy, here we go, a chastity talk. Let me assure you, Sri is not your typical chastity speaker, (laughs) and JP2 (laughs) is clearly not your typical chastity writer. The thing I I sort of want to caution against is, first of all, just kind of shutting your ears to the message that he has. And certainly, you know, don't think that this is the kind of thing that's being prescriptive about how far you can go and what that means. What he's really setting up here is what is the role of physical intimacy with the idea that the body is good. So yeah, I don't want you to get the idea that like you can't hold hands before you get married. Like some physical affection before marriage is totally acceptable and healthy. So don't get hung up on thinking that all physical intimacy is sex. And certainly don't get hung up on the idea that the body is bad or that expressing yourself through a bodily gesture like a hug would be a bad thing. Physical intimacy, especially in marriage, is extremely important to the relationship. And so it's putting things in the right order and in the right context. At no point should the takeaway be intimacy is bad before marriage, intimacy is good after marriage. You know, I think that there's a real need for physical intimacy in different ways to be expressed. And these two chapters together make a lot more sense of that. But keep an open mind, listen to it. It's certainly never saying that physical expression is like a purely bad thing. It's all about context. So that brings us to uh, the start of this conversation in chapter 10, talking about tenderness. Now, when JP2 is talking about tenderness. He's largely talking about physical affection, but not only. And he says even like it doesn't only apply to romantic relationships. You can be tender towards a friend or a family member. But the point of tenderness, as JP2 formulates it, is that it's the tendency to make one's own the feelings and mental states of another person. And it seeks outward expression to let the other eye know that you take his feelings and state of mind to heart. And to make this other human being feel that you are sharing it all, that you are feeling what he feels. This kind of feeling with and for the other person. Carrot really struck me as like a very deep and visceral description of what emotional closeness means that I don't really hear very often outside of this context. How did that hit you? It's interesting you say that because your natural inclination here is of course to be thinking about romantic relationships, but I do think it's helpful thinking about it in terms of same sex friendships and the idea that your closest friends are the ones where you feel like you guys just intimately understand each other and you sort of feel their pain, you know, even if it's not your own pain. And yeah, I think that that's a helpful view about feeling for the other in a, a healthy, non romantic way this unity of feeling is a really helpful way to understand human relationship in general, that all of it is geared towards some sort of unity, but it points to one specific type of unity, which is unity in itself, not under certain aspect, right? Because when you're expressing tenderness for a family member or a friend, it's not unrestrained tenderness. 
right? It is mm. tenderness according to a certain kind, but limited to that kind. Unlike romantic relationship where what we want is union with the whole person, not under any one aspect, not under any one kind or in any one mode, but the whole person in herself or in himself. So tenderness in a romantic context also has a very particular character. And it's still this wanting to experience this emotional unity with the other person. But its outward manifestation changes and its inner character, the depth of how personal it is, how intimate it is, is an all-encompassing sort of unity. One of the things that Sri and JP2 do a nice job of highlighting is the fact that because romantic relationships do have that orientation, when in particular you're at the very early stages of a relationship, we have to be even more on guard for not mistaking the sentimentality and the sensuality that are inherent in opposite sex relationships for something more than what they are. He gets into this idea of premature tenderness. Right. And the idea that it feels really good to be even emotionally intimate with somebody. I remember talking to so many girls in particular back in New York. It's like, we stayed up all night talking and like, we're definitely meant to be. And it's misplaced because it was like at the beginning of a relationship. And so that was a level of intimacy that was actually inappropriate for where they were in the relationship. And it made it seem like they were better friends than they actually were. Now, of course, having a long conversation with somebody who you're dating can be very helpful, but you know, I think it's this idea that, you know, where are where's the reality of the relationship? A theme that, you know, we've talked about many times over the course of of this book that you have to get to know someone over time. And so your the idea that the tenderness, the like ability to truly feel what the other person is feeling is hindered by the amount of knowledge that you have, or it's, it's subject to the amount of knowledge that you have about the other person. And so to think that you can know somebody really intimately in a short period of time is demonstrably false. And I think that the important point that they drive home in this chapter about it is just the fact that if you introduce tenderness, and again, I don't think he's not meaning tenderness like being kind. You know, somebody can show tenderness in a way to a stranger. But the sort of particularities of a romantic tenderness or a feeling like the relationship is closer than it is, and whether that be physical or emotional, if you do that too early, it actually hinders the process of being truly good friends and developing things like self-giving and desiring the best for the other, that objective love, which is your goal. If you introduce tenderness, and I think they mean in particular the physical elements, they get in the way of developing the friendship part of it. I mean, I've certainly seen this. Even in my own relationships, I was not perfect in my my dating history. Yeah, same. Oh, it's like very quickly. Well, now we've kissed and like every time you want to hang out, it's that's all you want to do. And it's like, <laughs> okay, we're not actually like getting to know each other any better, right? Right. That's the point they're driving home about putting things in their proper place. So this is kind of building on that dichotomy we had earlier between immature love where the subjective aspect was primary and mature love where the objective aspect was primary. Here he's really putting some flesh on the notion of an object of love here, because if that tenderness is motivated by a desire for unity with what the other person is genuinely feeling, whether or not that's even a, an attractive feeling, then that's more likely to be a mature love. But if it's primarily motivated by how good it feels, by what they're doing for you uh, in order to serve your desire to feel good, that's an immature love and that's not really tender. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. That's the right framing. And over time, that's going to lead to distance between the two people. It's not going to lead to unity because if both people are doing that, they're going to be pursuing their own ends and those two ends will diverge. One thing that was really cool at the end of the chapter, three quotes from JP2's play that he wrote while he was a bishop. And the play is called The Jeweler's Shop, where he's sort of putting into narrative story form some of the things we've talked about or some of the things he talks about in Love and Responsibility. One quote that I thought really brought this out was this person is describing their uh, relationship with their spouse that is breaking down because they're cold and distant. And she says, life changed into a more and more strenuous existence of two people who occupied less and less room in each other. 
Only the sum of duties remained, a sum total conventional and changing, removed further and further away from the taste of enthusiasm. I thought that was a really vivid kind of expression of what it feels like when you only stay in immature love and you don't progress to actually grow closer to the person as he or she is. And that's, it's interesting too, because I think it sort of highlights moving into the next chapter, the idea of spousal intimacy and the fact that you have to work on it as a couple. Yeah. And so, you know, chapter 11 is this titled How Contraception Harms Love. And I mean, it's ostensibly about contraception, but really this is a chapter about marital tenderness and like, what does that actually look like? And why does contraception stand in the way of marital tenderness? Yeah, I like that quote from the jeweler's shop because I think it illustrates so clearly what JP2 is talking about here with how contraception harms love. Um, and really, the thing that I think he stresses the most is that true union requires both emotional and physical aspects. And in particular, when we're talking about you know, the marital union or sex and marriage, it has to be a complete gift of the self. And that includes the possibility of parenthood. And so to withhold that part of yourself is to say that I love you, but not enough to want to enter into parenthood with you. Yeah, I don't want to be the father of your kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, thanks. And uh, I mean, one of the things that really struck me, perhaps, you know, especially as a newly married person, I've always loved the idea of a lot of times people think of marriage or a romantic relationship as two lovers gazing at each other. But the true ideal is partner standing shoulder to shoulder into the world. And that is the image that Sri describes about the openness of parenthood is that when you become a parent, you must turn away from the lover to look at the child and that that is an inherent good for the family. Now, I should also say that he doesn't explicitly say this here, but I've certainly read it elsewhere and particularly in Catholic thinking that that doesn't mean you only turn towards the children. You know, the turning <laughs> towards each other is extremely important. And a healthy marriage is primarily the thing that is good for the children, just to be clear. Oh, right. Yeah. No, like if you if you really want to love your kids, like you should love your kid's mother, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, exactly. yeah, right. You're still loving them, even if you're not immediately paying attention to them in that moment. And then he gets into NFP. He also highlights here that that doesn't mean you get to just avoid having sex all the time at the... You know, convenient times that really all of the union that you have with your spouse should be both unitive for the couple, but also thinking about the value of the family, that your physical intimacy is not just for you. There's a greater metaphysical reality. Yeah. Any children that might result from the marriage, those children are the union of you with your spouse. So if you're closed off to them, you're closed off to union with your spouse. Now, to be fair, there are plenty of valid reasons for engaging in natural family planning, which is really, it's really a group of different methods. So it's not to say that you need to hit a certain threshold of kids in order to be a valid Catholic family. It is good to remember that the church calls us to be generous. And in all of this, a couple who is practicing periodic abstinence, the difference between this and contraception is that they're still saying yes to each other because they're not engaging in sexual intercourse and at the same time filtering out some aspect of the other person. Whereas when they abstain from sex, they are both cooperatively engaging in the same act of the will to space out children or whatever. So they're still on the same page, whereas in contraception, they cannot possibly be on the same page. Well, they can be on the same page about the fact that they don't want kids, but... <laughs> they can agree, but they can't be on the same page when it comes to performing the same act. It's impossible for them yeah. to perform the same act because what they're after is not communion with the other person. What they're after is a feeling next to, in close proximity to another person, but that's not unity. It's not the full gift of self. Yeah. Well, so I think this is a good point to circle back to chapter 10. The thing that is more interesting to me about the marital state is his commentary on tenderness. And that's actually back in, in the prior chapter. Yeah, because the unity that the church is teaching on contraception and the spirit behind NFP is really signaled loud and clear by tenderness, the way 
JP2 describes it. And especially, he, he doesn't just say tenderness is a good thing, tenderness is important in a relationship. He goes out of his way to say that, really, I think he means both spouses, but especially the wife has a special right to the tenderness of her husband. Can't tell me JP2 wasn't a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the only place in the, in the book where he says things that happen to align with feminist ideas. So, Andrew, I have to ask, I mean, obviously, as a woman, loved this part, but how did it strike you as a guy to hear that your future wife has a special right to tenderness from you? So I think I'm weird because I thought it was great. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, my tune will probably change if and when I ever get married and I'm coming home from work after a long day and I need to, like, pay attention to another human being who's not me. (laughs) All the way back in the introduction, the first line of the introduction is Edward Sree quoting a, a buddy of his. This is dangerous. Don't let my wife see this. This part of the book is the most prominent place in the book that is prompting that response from husbands. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. I'm newly married, but both my brothers are much older. They're in their late 40s. And whenever I've talked to them about their friends who've been married for a long time and kind of what they've observed in marriages, both of them have said very clearly that the ones who are in the happiest marriages are the ones where the guys figured out that when they come home, they need to be present to their wife and their family. Now, of course, some people are introverts and need a little bit of time to recharge. And, you know, there's certainly some allowances for that. But the idea that my responsibility as a husband is to make sure that I am present to my family when I am home from work seems to be the key idea to making things work in a family. And I love that this hinges on how well the husband understands how he's supposed to be united to his wife because he's supposed to feel with and for her in a way that she, in general, you know, we're we're kind of making generalizations here, but this is more likely to be true than not in the majority of situations. She is probably going to understand that more readily than the husband will. And Sri gives a few different reasons why this is not going to be a mutual thing where both spouses are totally capable of doing this. Women are going to be more in touch with their husband's emotional lives to a better degree on the whole, generally, than the husband will reciprocate, which is difficult for men to understand. And this is part of the reason why women have a special right to this. Yeah, I I do think it's true that on the whole, women have a capacity to empathize with the situation of their husband's Take it for what you will if it's socialized or natural ingrained. But I think that it's also an internal posture that both of the spouses need to have. I think that this call is really a call for both spouses to be generous with the other in their experience and to remember that you both have a responsibility to be tender with the other. And especially if you're feeling trapped, I think Sri mentions this in the book, about women's roles, especially at home and in the family, are so overlooked and so infrequently praised. And you know, Sri mentioned that like he gets people who come up to him all the time and tell him how much they love his book, and nobody goes up to his wife to tell her like how great of a job she's doing raising their kids at home because it's just expected. And so I think that's where it's helpful for men to remember that, yeah, you have a certain burden of working all day and you are tired and kids are exhausting you've got to you know come home and do the second shift but at the same time like you men a lot of men don't actually have the firsthand experience of like being alone by yourself all day with a bunch of kids and what does that really feel like and also to like never be acknowledged or praised for that thing that you're doing and so that's where I think this over and above the normal empathy that men and women are supposed to have for each other. It's calling men to remember that this is a situation that they in some ways have no personal access to and that they have to be exceptionally tender to their wives because it's an extraordinary situation that they almost like can't understand. I kind of want to push back on that a little bit. Oh, that's fine. I mean, I'm expressing basically what he's saying in, in here. I'm like expanding on it, but like he does say all these things about like women being lonely and being at home and them not being appreciated for their work. And Oh, yeah. No, I, t- I totally agree on that part. I don't think that's the reason why women have a special right to tenderness, though. I agree that all of that stuff is true in itself. I just don't think that's what makes it true that like that this is a special responsibility that husbands have to have. Because it sort of it makes it sound like if the wife didn't have to stay at home with the kids, 
and if she had a full-time job, and if maybe the dad was the stay-at-home dad, then he wouldn't have to worry about this. Then it would just be totally vice versa. And yeah. the shoe would be on the other foot, and the husband would have a right to tenderness. I don't think that's what he's saying, though. I agree that it is like way more common for women to serve as stay-at-home moms, and that's totally under-recognized and totally under-acknowledged. But even if it was the other way around, I still think that men would have a more serious obligation to exercise tenderness toward their wives for the other reasons that he talks about. So one is that women tend to have a deeper emotional life. Not necessarily they're going to be more emotionally expressive. They may be very reserved outwardly. They may be very introverted. But at the same time, more often than not, women are going to have more going on under the surface than men are. And men don't readily understand that. They need to take active steps in order to get outside their own experience and to understand that somebody else might work a little bit differently. Mm, fair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And not to have to throw in a personal anecdote, but like the other day, Jason and I had a discussion in the car where I was sort of feeling a little grumpy afterwards, like he wasn't really understanding me. And as we were going to bed, he was like, I feel like you're still not cool with this. We need to keep talking about it because I don't want you to go to bed feeling like I don't get you, which I needed him to be the one who did that versus me pushing him to make that reconciliation. That's such a tricky thing because offline we were talking about way more serious situations where the couples split up. You were saying what? It's more often that the woman is the one who initiates the divorce and it's not uncommon for the guy to feel like he never saw it coming. Yeah, he claims to have not have known, and maybe he really doesn't know that something was wrong in the relationship. Right. But the point of tenderness is that he should know, and he should make an active effort to want to continue to know what is going on in his wife's heart. Yeah, definitely. And not just to keep it at DEFCON 4. Which one's the good one? DEFCON 4, DEFCON 1? I don't know. <laughs> right? Like, it's not just the simple version of happy wife, happy life. As long as I have, the, you know, these boxes checked, she should be fine and I can do my own thing. Because if that's the mentality, A, that's not tender. B, that's the sort of thing in the jeweler's shop quote of people taking up less and less room in each other's lives. And C, you're signifying that you don't want to be one with the other person anymore or to the yeah. same extent as you promised on your wedding day. So the fact that Jason has taken the initiative to see if there's something that was left unsaid, you know, in like normal husband and wife conversation, that's what needs to take place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it took him like an hour to sort of be like, okay, can we talk about this more than... <laughs> As long as it happens. Right? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I feel like exactly what we're saying, though, that, you know, it has to be a response to the other person and the idea in the jeweler shop of like taking up less space. It seems as though what happens in these marriages where things sort of fall apart. I've read a lot of Dr. John Gottman. He talks about people making bids. And a lot of times there's like a woman making a bid for something. And when someone is repeatedly ignoring the bids of their spouse, they stop making the bid. And then there's no outreach for that connection. And so, you know, you have to be responding to the spouse, whether or not you feel like it. When they're like expressing to you that they are asking for emotional connection, you have to respond in order to create not just tenderness, but that sort of emotional intimacy requires a response. It's not just we're married and now we're cool. It's constantly a process of making bids and responding to them and that back and forth. That's not just, oh, we had sex this week. It's about, you're right, like that full unity of like wanting to know and be fully part of the other person. I want to say that my own interpretation of this is maybe a little bit closer to erring into stereotypes than yours is. That's fair. I will say this. I personally do not have as similar of experiences for like the women's issues as the sort of prototypical woman. So I think I push back on some of those more than others may just because I don't feel like personally it's completely expressive of my experience. It's always hard to, there's generalizations that are true, but they may not be true for an individual. I want to make sure like we're respecting that or that I'm respecting that. <laughs> Because where, where I was trying to go with this, but I think it should be subjected to scrutiny, because there, there are parts of this narrative that do err more towards stereotypes of how men and women are. 
But even if that is the case, what it ends up justifying is not men should have greater rights over against women in the marriage or something like that. It's the opposite. Men have a greater responsibility to serve their wives in marriage. I think that recognizing the intrinsic, not conditioned, natural difference between the husband and the wife calls the man to pursue unity between the two to a greater extent. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. But I think it's important where you're coming from to acknowledge what parts of these are culturally conditioned. Yeah, I think the thing that I agree actually with the the end outcome that men need to be the ones who are going outside of themselves over and above their natural inclinations. And in some ways, I would just like to disregard his reasons why. Hmm. Maybe that's not fair of me. Okay, so what's the reason you would give in place of that? Because I think that might be closer to the truth. Yeah, I think Sri slash JP2 does mention in here that women are more relational. And I think that they do seek unity with their spouse more naturally. And that's a generalization. Obviously, there can be exceptions to that rule in particular relationships. But I do think that when we're talking about human nature-wise, I think that is generally true. And you sort of challenged me on the like, it's even true if both the man and the woman work. The men kind of have to work extra hard. Even if you're both picking the kids up from daycare and coming home, starting the day sort of on equal footing. I think this may be cultural. It may be ingrained but often women do take on a greater burden for the work that is done at home and work with the children yeah and can often feel alienated from their husband as a result of that and whether that's because it's not acknowledged by society or whether it's because she kind of resents it because she struggles with children anyway or whatever you know there can be lots of individualized reasons But I think the end result is still that in all of these circumstances, even with as much, you know, quote unquote, equality of the sexes, it doesn't take you long to go through a magazine nowadays and find another article about women complaining that they're still the ones doing all the unseen work. And you certainly see that in you know a lot of discussions about the pandemic, that a lot of women have dropped out of the workforce for this reason. And I think it's just further explanation for some of that natural inclination that women have to take care of the family. Yeah. And I think a lot of men are willing to let their wives do that. And so <laughs> it takes extra effort on their part to, even if that's okay, they agree that that's the split they want. It is a extra burden upon him to make sure that his wife feels valued and seen and like cared for in a particular way that I think takes more effort for men. Yeah, which women are kind of always already doing. Yeah, definitely. And I know a lot of women complain about this. And I I think the one thing I find hopeful about this section of the book is really that it's essentially the church calling men to be equal and take responsibility for their marriages. Yeah. And to say that, like, your marriage is not your wife's responsibility. Your marriage is both of your responsibility. Your children are both of your responsibility. That might naturally be harder for you, but you are called to care for your wife in a very particular way, regardless of the current cultural norms. And even if you feel like you're doing more work, like, the reality is everybody always feels like they're doing more work than the other person. Like I've lived with enough roommates over the years to know like everybody thinks they're pulling more weight than they should be. And nobody ever is. Maybe one. Maybe one person is. <laughs> I think that was that was probably the best discussion we've ever had. I feel like it was the most like we've had the most like real opinions of our own to talk about. Well, who knew tenderness was going to spark such a like wide-ranging discussion, but here we are. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why this is my favorite chapter in the book, chapter 10, so far. We'll be wrapping up with chapters 12 to 14, so that'll be two episodes from now. So, Kara, thanks for a great discussion. As always, thanks for having me. Please share this episode with your friends. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.